Thank you, Sarah. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Oh, they actually, actually are miking me. I never thought I needed a mic, but anyway. Um, so, yeah, when Sarah and I had talked about what I was going to talk about, uh, I said, well, I can give a more or less narrowly defined talk on a paper that I've done with a couple of co-authors, or I can talk more broadly about the political economy of exchange rates, um, or we can talk about the crisis. And I think uh, probably, judging from what Sarah says, there may be people interested in all of those three things in the room, um, which means that I have to disappoint two-thirds of those present, I suppose. What I'm going to do is talk about uh, a, the specific paper that was circulated, which is about the political economy of exchange rate regimes in transition economies in Eastern and Central Europe and the former Soviet Union. Um, and if there is interest afterwards, I think Sarah and I were just saying, people can, we can sort of... Uh, transition into, so to speak, into talking about the crisis, which is a little bit farther afield, but not that far afield from, from these sets of issues, uh, and something, of course, about which those of us who work in international political economy should have something to say. I was talking with a few of you before about that. But I'm going to focus, for now, on uh, the, the topic of the paper that was circulated, which is specifically about exchange rate regimes in transition economies. And as, as some of you may know, Sarah I know certainly does, I've been working on the political economy of exchange rates for a long, long time. Um, and years ago, I used to say I was the world's leading expert on the politics of exchange rates because I was the only person working on the area. That's no longer the case. Uh, it is, or it appears to many, to be a somewhat arcane subject, um, but, but I think... Its arcaneness ebbs and flows. When I started working on it, no one was interested in it. And then you had the Mexican currency crisis of 94 and the process of European monetary integration and the East Asian currency crisis, and then in quick succession, Brazil, Argentina, Turkey, uh, uh, um, Russia, and a whole series of other exchange rate crises. So I think you can make an argument that exchange rates have been and continue to be an extremely important component part of international economic affairs. And I think they're, they're, they are important in the current crisis. In the present instance, what I'm talking about is exchange rates in Eastern and Central Europe and the former Soviet Union. I did a lot of work in the 90s on EMU, um, which was a central focus of European integration for most of that decade. Uh, and then there was a lack of interest in the topic for quite some time until very recently. And now what has happened is that exchange rate choice and exchange rate policy in the accession, the accession countries and some of the non-accession countries in Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union has come back to the fore. It came back to the fore even before the current crisis. That is, by 2004-05, there were very deep and, and broad debates within the region over what to do about countries that had joined the EU but were not in the Eurozone in the former transition economies. And those debates, those discussions have accelerated with the current crisis. So, what, um, so it, this is... This has become a major issue in Europe, even these days a headline issue within Europe, and it is, of course, a major policy concern for the countries themselves. Those of you who follow Eastern and Central Europe that know that exchange rates, especially in the last few months, have been front-page front news throughout the region, uh, largely because they've been collapsing or threatening to collapse across the region with, with pretty serious economic and political effect. So let me start. What, what, I, what we do in this paper, I, I, should, I guess I should say, um, without going back to it, that the paper is co-authored with David LeBlanc, um, who is now at Virginia, and Nevin Valev, who is at Georgia State. Um, so, but let me, let me 
go through the basics of the paper. I don't really develop this, the argument in great detail in this paper, and I won't here because it is based on work that I and others have done over the last decade or so on the determinants of exchange rate regime choice. But let me, let me say that, which should be clear to those of you who read the paper or even skimmed it, that what we try to do is start from what you might think of as special interest politics or distributionally relevant politics with respect to ex exchange rate and think about which groups in society would be expected to support or oppose different exchange rate policies and then try to see whether the experience of the countries in question in Eastern and Central Europe and the former Soviet Union, the transition economies in shorthand, whether the experience of these countries tracks the kinds of distributionally relevant or special interest pressures that we anticipate. So we do focus on the distributional preferences and recognizing that there are many other reasons why countries or governments adopt the exchange rate regimes that they do. The standard economic approach to exchange rate regime choice, which I think few economists actually believe since they recognize that, that exchange rates are politically determined as well as economically, focuses on quote-unquote efficiency or social welfare concerns. And some of you will know there's a big literature on what's called optimal currency area considerations, which has to do with with characteristics of the structure of an economy that would make it more or less attractive to give up your currency and peg it to another country's currency. So that's one set of considerations. There are more politically electoral pressures, which I don't, we don't focus on in this paper, but I can talk about and have brought along some slides about because I've done some other work on electoral pressures. And then perhaps most directly relevant to these countries, there is the fact that exchange rate regime choice, exchange rate policy in Europe is not independent of other policies, including other non-economic policies. That is, being part of the Eurozone is not, is not only an economic decision. Uh, it's also a political decision, perhaps even a geopolitical decision. It may implicate social policy and a variety of other, of other features of the European integration process. So all these things matter, but I'm going to try to make a relatively simple argument which focuses on the special interests in question, or the, the the particularistic interest in question. Now, again, if we think of the choice available to governments, we can think of a simplified, an excessively simplified uh, continuum going from a fixed rate, that is a rate, which, uh, exchange rate, which doesn't vary against other currencies, at the extreme, adopting another currency like the dollar or the euro, or a currency board, which amounts to the same thing, and a freely floating rate, that is a rate whose value is determined entirely in uh, currency markets. And so who would we expect to support a fixed rate or a floating rate? Well, in favor of a floating rate, typically we would imagine those whose goods enter into international, who are affected by international competition, right? And the reason is that, which we call tradables producers, that is particularly manufacturing and agriculture. Now, particularly, the reason for that is that having a floating rate allows the government to, and I'm simplifying a bit wildly here, but allows the government to depreciate or push the rate down, which makes your goods more competitive in domestic and foreign markets. So if you're a manufacturer or if you're a farmer in any open economy, uh, a floating rate gives the government the option of depreciating that rate and making your goods more attractive and making foreign goods more expensive. So it gives you a competitive edge. Think about it, think of the opposite, or the, the, the obverse or converse, or one of those two. Uh, that is, a, a fixed rate makes it impossible for the government to respond to competitive pressures on tradables producers by depreciating the currency. Right? So you, what we, in the US, which is 
probably, for these, for a variety of reasons, we're much less familiar with the politics of exchange rates here, at least in the last 100 years or so, than in small open economies such as those in Europe. But in the United States, when the currency appreciates, when it rises in real value, um, it's the farmers and the manufacturers who complain. And they're the ones that are constantly saying, we've got to push the dollar down, or, which is the same thing, we've got to force the Chinese to push their currency up. Right? So if you think of fixing an exchange rate, it removes that policy instrument. And that's something that would, would typically be undesirable to tradables producers. Right? Whoops. Okay, let me try that again. Okay. Okay. Um, so the, uh, in favor of fixing an exchange rate, so who would want a fixed exchange rate? Groups that are subjected to currency volatility and don't like it. That is, would, would, would lose from volatile currencies, and particularly those that have substantial cross-border or cross-currency exposure. So you can think of multinational corporations, whether inward or outward. You can think of the financial and commercial sectors that typically sign contracts across borders and across currencies at relatively long horizons. You can think of people or firms in particular or banks that have substantial euro or dollar debts. Right. Now, in all of these instances, you can hedge against currency fluctuations, but hedging is expensive, right? very expensive in the case of these very small economies. It is typically very difficult to protect yourself against currency fluctuations more than six months in advance. And in some of the countries in question, like Albania and a few other very small, and even in the bigger ones, even in the case of Poland or Romania or Bulgaria, the forward markets are very, very narrow and very, very expensive. So if you're, let's say, a Bulgarian firm and you have borrowed heavily in dollars or in euros, the last thing you want is for the government to be able to devalue the currency, which is going to raise the real debt burden for you. Right? So similarly, so any, any economic actor that's internationally exposed is going to be favorable to stabilizing exchange rates in a way that will stabilize the, their cost of doing business. Now, I'll, the mass public might have an interest in this. I'll perhaps come back to that if we have time. I'll just skip over it for now. I want to note one thing um, before someone else notes it for me, which is that there is one group that sort of is torn in two different directions, and that's exporters. So if you think of exporters, exporters want two things, which may be mutually contradictory. The first thing they want is a weak currency. So they want the government to be able to push the currency down for competitiveness purposes. But they also, generally speaking, would like a stable currency because that uh, stabilizes the prices that they're dealing with, both the import prices and, most importantly, the export prices. So exporters may be conflicted, and, and without going into a lot of detail, we have some pretty good ideas as to what would determine whether an exporter or an exporting industry would care more about the stability of the exchange rate or the competitiveness of the exchange rate. Right? That's really the, the dichotomy or the trade-off that we're talking about with respect to exchange rate choice. On the one hand, a fixed rate gets you stability and predictability in the foreign exchanges and with respect to monetary values like inflation. On the other hand, a floating rate gives you flexibility to respond to economic conditions with active exchange rate policy, including to try to make your goods more competitive in international markets. That's a trade-off. That trade-off weighs very differently on different groups in society. And again, just to reiterate the special interest kind of approach here, that the internationally ex I expect the internationally exposed economic actors to care a lot more about the stability side of the trade-off, while tradables, tradables producers, I expect to, to care a lot more about the competitiveness side of the trade-off. Okay? 
So to try to look at this in this context, we have 21 transition economies in Eastern and Central Europe and the former Soviet Union. That's the list there. They, we don't have enough data to look at four countries, again, up there. And the left-hand side, what we're trying to explain is the exchange rate regime in place, and this is over about a 15-year period in question. Now, for those of you who are not adepts of exchange rate analysis, which is probably most of you, or maybe even all of you, um, there are two things to be explained with respect to exchange rate policy. The first is the stated policy of the government. Governments, again, this is something that Americans aren't too used to, but if, if you've traveled abroad or if you know anything about comparative monetary or, or economic policy more generally, you know that governments often will say, we are pegging against the Deutschmark or against the euro or against the dollar, or we are allowing the currency to float freely or something along those lines. That is the stated policy. That's the de jure exchange rate policy, which we get from what the countries in question, what the governments in question tell the IMF. But governments don't always do what they say they're doing. And so in most instances, and I'll come back to this because there is an interesting just juncture between these two, in most instances what's more relevant is what governments in fact are doing. Ironically, one of the most interesting findings of the past 20 years in this open economy macro literature is that governments that say they are floating freely often intervene to stabilize the exchange rate. So as you'll see in some of the data, it's very common for a government to say we're allowing the market to determine our exchange rate but to, without announcing it, intervene to keep the exchange rate from rising or falling or, or moving around more than it might like. This is what's sometimes called in the literature fear of floating. So the, the more meaningful evaluation here is of the de facto exchange rate policies of governments. That is what they're actually doing rather than what, they're say, what they say they're doing. And just this, this is not big enough, and I, I tried to increase the font size, but I failed. Um, on the plane. So anyway, um, but all this shows is how exchange rate regimes have varied over time. The main thing I think you should take away from this is that there's a lot of variation. That is, that both in de facto and de jure, even today, there's a lot of different kinds of exchange rate regimes in Central, Eastern and Central Europe in the transition economies. Um, if you wanted to get more specific about it, one thing that's sort of interesting is that a pure float has become much rarer today than it was early on. And it's, it's somewhat more common than it was early on for countries, governments, to, to peg their exchange rates. Right? But that's a, a gradual evolution over time. Frankly, since we stopped in 2004, that doesn't pick up, obviously, the last four or five years. In the last four or five years, as many of you will know, a lot of countries have been driven off their pegs, so there'd be something of a movement back towards floats and managed floats. But there's a lot of variation in the region. So how do we try to explain it? Uh, again, I'm looking for explanatory variables that pick up indirectly. We don't have direct measures of interest groups. We don't have direct measures of distributional pressures. We don't have direct measures of any of the stuff that we'd like to have, or much of the stuff that we'd like to have direct measures of. So we try to find proxies. So first, who do we expect to be in favor of floating? The tradables producers. So we use just very simply the share of manufacturing and agricultural employment in the economy. Right? And remember, these, these countries are highly varied. They go from Albania to the Czech Republic. Right? And in, with respect to manufacturing, for example, they go, if I remember correctly, from about 10, less than 10% employment in manufacturing to over 35%. And in agriculture, they go from less than 10% employment in agriculture to over 65%. So there's a lot of variation 
in, in, across these countries in the uh, importance of manufacturing and agriculture in the economy. Democracy. Now, I, I know that a lot of people are interested in this, and we can come back to this in discussion. I have co-authors, and they actually are divided on this democracy thing. And so I'm the median voter, and I'm, I'm agnostic as to how democracy might play out. On the one hand, we expect, or at least one co-author expects, that democracies are going to want to maintain a floating exchange rate so they can manipulate it for electoral purposes. Because if you, you know, why would any democratic politician ever give up an opportunity to increase his probability of being reelected, which is what happens when you have a, don't have a floating exchange rate. Another of my co-authors says, in the transition economies, people are deathly afraid of inflation, they don't trust the government, and the government can buy some credibility and buy some political support by choosing to fix, which then proves that they are serious about keeping inflation low. So that's what the question mark means. That question mark means that my co-authors disagree, and I'm agnostic, and we'll see what the data say. Um, who should favor fixing? Well, pro again, internationally exposed economic actors. Foreign direct investment is a share of GDP. Foreign debt as a share of GDP, those are pretty straightforward. The more important cross-border investment is, the more important foreign liabilities are, that is, euro or dollar liabilities owed by domestic agents, the more resistance there should be to a, a devaluation or to a fluctuation in the exchange rate. Openness really is a proxy for the importance of cross-border economic activity. Trade concentration, which is something that I'll spend some time talking about in, in a bit, trade concentration simply means what share of the country's exports go to Germany, right? or how important exports to Germany are in, in the country's economic activity. Um, Germany or the, EM, the Eurozone more generally, they're, they're correlated about 0.8 or something, so it's the same thing. The idea here is it, you know, the more you trade with the Eurozone, the more you want to be fixed against the Euro. Turns out not to be true, but anyway, one should expect that. And one would be wrong, but what, that's what one should expect. The controls that we put in are standard, ec largely economic controls, or they're seen as economic controls. Some of them, I think, deserve a political economy interpretation, and I'll come back to that. But typically we say, well, if inflation is high, countries won't want to fix, because if you fix with inflation high, you drive your, your firms out of competition. You know, the, the, the prices are rising while the exchange rate is fixed. Financial development is basically the depth of the banking system. The idea here is that countries with very weak financial systems have trouble dealing with the floating exchange rate. To have a floating exchange rate, you need financial systems that are more sophisticated, forward markets and things like that. So less financially developed countries typically don't float. Uh, the current account balance, again, I'll say something about the political economy of that, but you know, if you're running a current account deficit, it's a lot harder to maintain a fixed rate. So we would expect a current account deficit to, lead more to be more likely to be associated with floating. Uh, how liberalized the economy is more broadly, whether the central bank is independent, whether you're running big fiscal deficits. Again, these are sort of straight economic things. Whether your business cycle is correlated with Germany, that comes out of the economic literature on the optimal currency area. The idea is if your business cycle is perfectly correlated with Germany, you don't need an independent, exchange, uh, independent currency. You could just follow German policy because German policy is going to respond to German conditions. So if your conditions are the same as Germany's, you, know, you follow them. So those are the controls. And what we do is very straightforward. It's, uh, we, we, the left-hand side, as I say, is either a fixed or a floating rate. We try later on in the robustness checks to look at a more, grade, a more gradated, graded or gradated, differentiated uh, range of exchange rate policies. But the, most, the clearest one 
uh, the clearest distinction is between countries that float and countries that fix. And so we group them all in that sort of uh, in, in, in those two bins and run a probit analysis of this variety. And I've got all the stuff for those of you who want to uh, ask about the specifics. Um, there, we, and, you know, the one thing that we're a little bit proud of, just a little bit proud, is is we did try to come up with some independent variables since they're all the rage. These, I'm sorry, with some uh, with some instrumental variables since they're all the rage now. And the IVs that we try to that we use, which enter into the robustness checks and 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 leave things completely undisturbed, are whether the country has a common border with an EMU country or whether the country's in Asia. They may not be the best instruments, but you know, these days you have to have an IV implementation, so we do. Um, so anyway. Results. I, I'm not presenting the full regression. That's in the paper. The tables are all in the paper. I'm just going to put this up, and I'm going to um, go through it really quickly in this straightforward presentation of the regression results because then I'm going to present, I think, some more intuitive numbers about the substantive interpretation, and I'll talk about wh- wh- how to think about these results. So as you can see, this is the, the main set of results. The openness of the economy is so one is is fixing right so the openness of the economy is very strongly associated with fixing more open economies more likely to fix let's skip the exports to germany and then the tradable sector the bigger the tradable sector in both instances agriculture and manufacturing more likely to float democracy more likely to fix fdi as a share of GDP, more likely to fix. So those are all as expected. I'm going to skip over the exports to Germany because that's not as expected, and I'll come back to that because I think it's an interesting thing. So the, the, the openness and exposure to FDI, these cross-border activities, strongly associated with fixing, tradables, strongly associated with floating. Um, put in a whole bunch of other stuff. Note just for the, the, the manufacturing loses significance, it's very highly correlated with financial development. Not surprisingly, countries that have more developed financial systems are, that tend to be richer economies that tend to have more manufacturing. But all the other ones are pretty much, the results are pretty much as expected. As I say, I'm going to come back to a substantive interpretation. Um, just what's added in here is countries running high inflation rates don't fix. Countries running Trade surpluses are more likely to fix. That's trade balance is positive. So if you're running a surplus, you're more likely to fix. If you're running a deficit, you're more likely to float. Debt, uh, countries that are more heavily indebted are more likely to fix. Uh, and then the dummy for Eastern and Central Europe and the thing for financial development. So this is the more intuitive way of thinking about this. If you simply look at the substantive effect of a one standard deviation increase in any of these explanatory variables on the likelihood of adopting a de facto peg, this is what you get. So let's, let me start with the things that lead to a greater likelihood of fixing. So a one standard deviation increase in trade openness, imports plus, plus exports as a share of GDP, 12% increase in the probability of pegging. Right? Um, a one standard deviation increase in, this is on the polity scale, in democracy, 13 percentage point increase in the probability of fixing. Uh, one standard deviation increase in FDI, eight percentage point increase in the likelihood of fixing. Um, external debt also increases the likelihood of fixing. In f- and the trade balance increases the likelihood of fixing. Now, the trade balance, let me clarify, that's a surplus. So a bigger surplus makes it more likely for you to fix. By the same token, a bigger deficit makes it more likely for you to float. Okay? So those are fixing. On floating, again, a one standard deviation increase in agriculture 
or manufacturing as a share of employment leads to a 16.5 or 19.5 percentage point increase in the likelihood of floating. Inflation increases the likelihood of floating. Exports to Germany also increase the likelihood of floating. Okay? So this is just the substantive interpretation of the results that I was talking about, um, which I then, since I always forget what's on the next slide, uh, repeat here. So pretty much, much of what we're talking about is borne out. Tradables are strongly associated with floating. The bigger, the, manu- the bigger, more important manufacturing and agriculture is, the stronger we can infer the pressures are on the government not to fix the exchange rate, that is, to allow the government to pursue an active exchange rate policy to keep the currency competitive. Um, the bigger the trade deficits are, the more likely the country is to float. And then things like inflation, financial development, which are really controls. And then the more trade open a country is, the more FDI it's engaged in, inward and outward, the, more, the bigger its foreign debts, the more likely it is to fix. Let me come back to the trade deficits one, because a lot of people would associate that with a purely economic result. That is, kind of running a trade deficit, the currency is under pressure. But there's a, there is a, a, a detail about how, this, how we've done this, which is the current account deficit has no impact in, in exactly the same run, has no impact on floating or fixing. Economically speaking, the current account deficit is what should matter because the current account takes into account all the money flowing into and out of the country. It's the current account, a current account deficit that leads to pressure on the currency. The fact that the, trade, that the current account deficit has no impact, but the trade deficit has a very strong impact, tells us something. And what I believe it tells us is that, is that the trade deficit, that, is that it tells us something about the political economy of this. Trade deficit, the current account deficit is composed of things like um, debt service payments, remittances, tourism, services, all sorts of stuff, much of which is not highly salient politically. But the trade balance, the trade deficit means that the country is realizing, is experiencing a surge of imports, that importer, import computers are doing poorly and or that exporters are doing poorly. So the fact that the current account balance has no impact, but the trade balance does, to me, says this is not an economic relationship. This is a political economy relationship. The trade balance has an impact on exchange rate policy because when import competitors and exporters are faced with more competition, they want the government to push the exchange rate down. So it's not an economic relationship but a political economy. one. That's just some of my pet peeves. In any event, that's... Now, I think of interest to some, certainly to economists, most of the stuff that standard economic analysis anticipates will determine exchange rate regime choice has no impact. First-generation currency crisis models, a la Krugman, focus on fiscal deficits. No effect. Current account deficits. No effect. Optimal currency area criteria, like correlation of business cycle with Germany. No effect. Central bank independence. No effect. The volatility of growth rates and other optimal currency area criteria. No effect. Market liberalization. Um, so, So none of the standard, purely economic variables had an impact when the political economy ones are put in. Um, an inter- uh, interesting, I keep saying interesting. Interesting to me. An interesting point to me is that this principal uh, real factor, that is the role of tradables employment, has much less of an impact on stated exchange rate policy. And I think that is intuitive, that is intuitive and makes some sense. A government states an exchange rate policy. In particular, it states a policy about fixing, typically, for monetary purposes, that is to stabilize inflation expectations. 
right? You wouldn't expect tradable's producers to care what the government's stated policy is. What they care about is the real policy, that is the policy that's just put into practice. And so there is a, a weaker relationship between the stated policy and tradable's producers. There's actually a stronger relationship between inflation and stated policy. So the monetary factors have a stronger impact on the, the government's statements about exchange rate policy, while the real factors have a stronger impact on the, the, the real policy, the policy as implemented. So some puzzles. First, democracy. Why is democracy associated with, with fixing? Uh, whoops. Um, I think um, I would speculate that, uh, that Neven, who is my Bulgarian co-author, um, is, is probably right about these countries. That is that the, these are governments that generally lack credibility and that democratic governments in an attempt to signal their credibility, which authoritarian governments have less concern about doing, signaling their credibility to their, the mass public and to the, popula- to the mass public have more incentives to pursue a policy like fixing in a democratic regime. So that's, that's, that is a hunch. And I, to be honest, I don't, I don't have a lot invested in it, so I'm willing to, to entertain other ideas. It's a, we, it is a very strong result, and it doesn't go away. And we've updated some of these data, and it still doesn't go away. Um, and it is contrary to the finding in a lot of the rest of the world. So it is, it is something, I mean, if we, you did a big cross-national study, including Latin America and East Asia, what you would find in almost every instance is the opposite. So it, it is almost certainly something about either the economic structure or the politics or the political economy or the social structure of the transition economies, and I'm not quite sure what it is. Anyway, that's one thing. Now, the trade concentration, well, I keep saying I'm postponing that. So what, what it says is that, controlling for all this other stuff, um, countries that trade more, for whom trade with Germany is more important, are less likely to fix their currencies against the euro. Countries that trade with the eurozone are less likely to fix their currencies against the euro. Very counterintuitive and very puzzling and not what we expected. It is what one previous study had found. A bunch of other studies had found differently, but they're not as good as ours. But there is a a good previous study that found the same thing. And everything we we did, everything we could imagine to try to, 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 to push that result and see if there was something confounding that was driving it, and there wasn't. So here's, here's a couple of the speculations that we have, both of which I think, each of which I think has something of the truth. So the first is countries, especially in the transition region, but perhaps everywhere, see pegging the exchange rate in a forward-looking way. That is, they see linking a currency to the dollar or to the euro as a way of stimulating trade and investment between their country and the anchor. So if you're Estonia and you have real questions about whether you're going to be able to make it into the European economy, be integrated into the European economy, pegging your currency to the Deutschmark and then to the euro is a way of trying to encourage trade ties and investment ties with the eurozone. So the countries most likely to do that would be countries that don't or did not have a natural affinity to trade with Germany, with the Eurozone. And in fact, what we see is the countries countries more likely to peg are countries sort of on the periphery of Europe, 
Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Bulgaria. And the countries that are less likely to peg are the countries that from the start, from the, the moment the Berlin Wall fell, traded enormous amounts with Germany because they were sort of in Germany's natural economic zone. The Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, Hungary. Right? So the first idea that we entertain is that countries that anticipated that they would have very substantial trade and investment ties with Germany from the start didn't see, think that it was necessary to adopt a peg in order to, in order to artificially encourage those economic ties. And the way we try to look for that is by using as a control the level of trade with Germany in the first two or three years after the Berlin Wall falls, after 1991 really. Right? And that in fact does pick up all the variation. So it, this is all driven by these countries that traded very heavily with Germany from the very start, which is mainly those four that I was talking about. So that's one possibility. Another possibility which is relevant, I don't think they're not usually exclusive, um, another possibility that's, that's relevant to the current debates is um, it is not out of the question that governments would be allowing their exchange rate to move steadily downward in anticipation of, of, of joining the Eurozone or pegging to the Euro at some point in the near future. That is, you don't want to enter the Eurozone with a very hot, strong exchange rate if you're worried about your goods competing in the, Euros, in the, EM, in the European market. Right? So just as countries that have dollarized with the US and many of the countries that Euroized, and many of the countries that actually ended up, in the southern European countries that ended up joining the Eurozone, pushed their currencies down in the years before a session in order to start from a depreciated rate, it may be the case, and some people have speculated this is what's going on in parts of Central and Eastern Europe today, that governments are trying to get their currencies down, to push them down, float them downward, in anticipation of joining the euro at a depreciated rate. So that's a possibility as well. Anyway, we did a, this sort of exercise here just to show what, so we took the, the data, we took, we took the regression results that we had from the main run and took data from, that, from 2004, and on that basis, calculated the probability that a country would have a, a currency peg as of 2005. And then, that's what's in the left, this here, this column here. And then here is the exchange rate regime that, in fact, was in place in 2004. It didn't really change much between 2004 and 2005. And so, in support of our, our estimates, um, the four countries that are most strongly expected to have fixed exchange rates, in fact, do. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Bulgaria. Right? Um, and the countries that are least expected to have fixed exchange rates, Czech Republic and Romania, are the only two that actually have a, a float, as opposed to a managed float. So that sort of works out. But there are some peculiarities here, one of which is that, as many of you will know, Slovenia has now joined the Eurozone, even though we predict it not to be uh, not to be likely to, to fix. It's one of the, the lowest in terms of the probability. Um, and that if we think a little bit about what is likely to happen, it's not out of the question that some of the countries that we anticipate as being less likely to link to the euro will in fact do so. So, you know, one would have to ask why there is that kind of disconnect, and I think that's a, 
That's something that I alluded to in the, in the, at the outset, which is that EMU is not just about the euro, is not just about exchange rates. It's also about a broader range of policies and political and geopolitical and political economy and social connections with the integrated European space. Um, it's also possible that countries are strategically, cleverly, sneakily, floating in preparation for eventual entry into the eurozone. Um, so let me just conclude this part and say that uh, I think that what we have here is some at least circumstantial evidence for the influence of economic interests on currency policy. The more powerful, more important tradables producers are in an economy, the less likely a peg is, as expected. The more powerful internationally oriented um, agents are, the more likely it is that a country is to peg. If I wanted to try to get you a little more excited about this topic, I might point out that in Europe today, uh, the future of Eastern and Central Europe is probably among the two or three very top issues on policymakers' um, uh, radar screen. Danielle and I were talking before about this, and the, all throughout Europe, there is real fear as to what's going to happen in Poland, in Hungary, which is already in a dire, dire crisis, in Slovakia, and throughout Eastern and Central Europe. And one of the great questions is not just what's going to happen to these countries' economies and to their banking systems, but what's going to happen to their currencies, many of which have already collapsed, many of which, the collapse of many of which risks exacerbating the economic crisis that Eastern and Central Europe is in, right? the collapse of which also risks exacerbating Western Europe's crisis, because most of the banking systems in Eastern Europe are heavily influenced by or controlled by banks based in Western Europe. So the Europeans are really concerned about what Eastern and Central European and former Soviet countries do with their exchange rates. Are the Poles going to try to fix this lottery? Are they going to let it continue to slide? Are the Hungarians going to experience a full-fledged Argentine-style currency collapse? Are the Bulgarians going to be able to maintain their currency board? Are the Baltic states? All these questions are front and center in policy debates in Europe today. And you know, my hope would be that some of the factors that I've talked about today are, are of relevance to the outcome of the crisis. It's also important, I think, because it may have implications for Euro accession. I think it's certainly relevant. Uh, Euro is, the Euro is more than just a regime choice. It's a broader political choice. But I do think that the factors that have influenced exchange rate policy over the past 15 or 20 years in Eastern and Central Europe in the transition economies will also influence accession to the Eurozone. So that's, um, that's where I'll stop, pointing out, of course, that, uh, that the data that we had available at the time were very limited, and that the analysis we carry out is partial. And uh, that means that I should conclude by saying, like all academic talks, that uh, we need more research. So we do need more research. Let me stop here, and I, I can do one of three things. The first thing I can do is talk about other stuff I've done on exchange rates. I have slides on other exchange rate policy things in the American context historically, in Latin America, in, in other empirical and theoretical contexts. Or I can talk a little bit about the current crisis, or I can just shut up and take whatever questions you may have. So, Sarah, you can... Crisis. Crisis. <laughs> Another county heard from. Okay. Open up questions to whatever people are okay, sure. Interested. 
Okay, well, this, I mean, it's sort of changing gears, although I'll try to connect it to, to exchange rates. So I'm a little disturbed by the general coverage of the crisis because I think it, it uh, all, that is in the, the sort of popular and journalistic coverage, because I think it misses some of the essential components of the American source of the current state that we're in. Now, the specialist literature is not so confused, and the specialist literature has been focusing for five years now on a set of macroeconomic imbalances that, in my view, is the real source of the crisis. I mean, most of the journalistic accounts and a lot of the broader accounts focus on the very sort of uh, arc, the, the, the fascinating financial components, subprime markets, securitization, the various tranches, and how, you know, as you, the, 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 the New Yorker had a cartoon a couple of weeks ago where you have a couple of tough guys in some guy's office looking at a sheet of paper very confusedly and saying, problem with these, this securitization is I never know whose knee, kneecaps to break. You know? So there's a, this focus on the, on the complexity of the financial instruments and how that obscured the relationship between the ultimate borrowers and the ultimate holders of the debt, uh, the, the originator distribute model, all the, the laxity of financial regulation, all these things, I think, play a role. But in my view, they are strictly subsidiary to the big story. And the big story is that between 2001 and 2007, the U.S. borrowed, on average, every year, between half a trillion and a trillion dollars from the rest of the world. We built up, we inc- the, the gross, our gross debt to the rest of the world increased by about $25 trillion over the course of those seven years. Our net debt, that is taking away our, uh, our investments in the rest of the world, increased by about $5 trillion. So we were engaged in a classic borrowing spree. And we know what a borrowing boom looks like. Capital flows into the country. It has two macroeconomic effects. The first effect it has, since money has to be spent on something, is a lot of it gets spent on imports. Right? And that's why when you run a current account deficit, you also, when you run a fiscal deficit, you also run a current account deficit or a trade deficit. But we ran that. Right? But it also gets spent domestically on goods that don't, don't enter international trade. So our trade deficit goes from $250 billion to $700 billion, and that's part of it. But the other half, or two-thirds of the money, is spent domestically on non-tradables. The principal non-tradable, the most important consumption item in everyone's basket, the most important non-tradable in the economy, is housing. 30-35% of the consumption basket, 30-35% of the economy. And so, as was the case in, let's see, the developing countries in the 70s and early 80s, Mexico in the early 90s, Argentina in the 90s, Turkey, Brazil, uh, Russia, um, the U.S. in the 1890s, Germany in the 1920s. This massive inflow of capital leads to an expansion, especially in non-tradables, financial services, insurance, real estate. That expansion leads to a boom. The boom leads to a bubble, and eventually the bubble bursts. Now, as Daniel and I were saying, you never know what's going to lead to a bursting of the bubble. It could be the assassination of the leader of the ruling party, as in Mexico. It could be the collapse of international negotiations, as in perhaps in Germany. It could be um, animal spirits. It could be a downturn in the housing market, as in the U.S. But eventually, as you know, what people were saying in 2004, 2005, was that the end of this bubble was inevitable. And if modern social science can tell us anything, it's that if something's inevitable, it'll probably happen, right? <laughs> and it did. 
So, if you, so what I would say about the crisis, the way I would develop the, 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 the explanation of the crisis is you start the clock around 2000. And I know that's a long way to think back for some of you. Um, but in 2000, remember, we were running a surplus. And all the debates were over how to get rid of the surplus and what to do about it. And people were actually saying, if this, is, this surplus could be a really terrible thing. Because if the Fed runs out of treasury securities to sell, how's it going to be able to, to operate an active monetary policy? That was the character of the discussion in, in 2000. With the stroke of a pen in 2001, George Bush solved that problem. And by the end of 2001, we were running the biggest budget deficits in history. Right. 2001, so what happens in 2001 is the country starts running a very substantial fiscal deficit. And that's financed entirely from abroad, right, in, in net terms. So the first moment is the fiscal deficit, which leads to a big increase in the capital inflow from abroad. That then stimulates the domestic economy. Stimulates the domestic economy in the context of the dot-com bubble bursting and of 9-11. So there's reason to try to stimulate it. The Fed is also at the same time pushing interest rates down. As you may recall, by, two, by the end of 2002, interest rates are 1%. The Fed funds rate is 1% with inflation 2 or 3%. So we're into negative real interest rate territory. And the Fed keeps interest rates there all through 2003 and most of 2004. What they say at the time is, concern about 9-11, concern about the dot-com bubble bursting. What some people say at the time is, this is an attempt to get George Bush reelected. Who knows? John Taylor, who was certainly no fan, uh, no, no, no fan of opponents of George Bush. John Taylor, who was associated with the Bush administration, has a very interesting article using the Taylor rule, which is the standard rule for explaining monetary policy or, or, or projecting appropriate monetary policy, saying that you cannot, that no reasonable Taylor rule monetary policy could explain interest rates being driven down that far in 2003 and 2004. Right? So, so first moment, fiscal deficit stimulates the economy. The Fed pushes interest rates down. And that leads to a huge expansion in private sector borrowing. Right? But not corporate sector, household sector. Real interest rates are negative. The household sector starts borrowing in massive amounts in 2003, 2004. Very interesting relationship. You know, the flows of funds allow you to tell which sectors of the economy are net borrowers and which are net savers. So who's borrowing from the rest of the world and who's not? All through the late 90s, we're running a current account deficit of 3% of GDP, sometimes 4 which people argued about at that point. But that current account deficit Half of it was households, 1% maybe, 1.5%. Half of it, maybe 2%, was corporations. So people said, well, the households are borrowing too much. That's a bad thing, but a lot of corporate debt. This is in the dot-com bu bubble or the, the dot-com expansion. A lot of productive investment. Europe is you know, in the doldrums. Japan is in the doldrums. Not surprising that foreigners are lending money to the American corporate sector. By 2001, the corporate sector is in surplus. So American private corporations are not borrowing on net from the rest of the world. All the borrowing is coming from the government and from households. 4% of GDP goes to government. Starting in 2001, it's about 2% to households. By 2005, it's 5% to households. So all of the borrowing is going to the, the, to the public sector and to households. If this was a developing country, what the IMF would be saying, or Rudy Dornbush, if he were still alive, would be saying is, red flag, red flag. You're accumulating all this foreign debt and none of it's going to the corporate sector. It's all going to households who are borrowing only because real interest rates are negative, 
and to the government, which is borrowing because it doesn't want to raise taxes. This is not increasing your productivity, unless getting everybody an iPod is increasing their productivity. This is not increasing American productivity. This is a bad deal. This is an economically unsound model. You're building up $5 trillion worth of foreign liabilities, and you have not increased the productive capacity of the economy accordingly. Right? And that, in fact, is what people were saying in 2004, 2005, 6, 7, 8, and no one listened. Right? So the point I guess I would want to make is without, um, without downplaying the importance of a regulatory environment that was far too lax or of a financial sector that had agency problems that will keep business school professors in business for the next 30 years, right? and lots of dishonesty and corruption and fraud and abuse and all sorts of other stuff, without downplaying any of that, the underlying macroeconomic imbalances are the true cause of the crisis. And what we're in today is an American version of a debt crisis. And it has all the characteristics of the crises that we've observed around the world in developed and developing countries, not just developing countries. The Scandinavian countries have a very similar... Ireland and Iceland are, are going through something very similar to what we're going through today. Um, now, the U.S. is not Argentina. There are a lot of differences. One big difference is, imagine, if you will, August of 2008, we're staring over the cliff. Markets are collapsing. No one can see bottom. Imagine if we had been an Argentina or a Brazil or an Indonesia, because what would have happened at that point is that funds to the U.S. government would have dried up. That's the sudden stop aspect of a developing country debt crisis. What saved the U.S. and what saved the world to an extent is that we can respond to that by printing money and by borrowing. And when we print money, we don't get 10,000% inflation, and we can borrow more or less in infinite amounts. So that saved us, and it saved the world, and it's a good thing. But the general character of the crisis, in my view, is akin to what we've seen over and over again. Now, how does this have to do with exchange rates? Well, um, Daniel and I were talking about this, too. We talked about a lot of stuff in just 20 minutes. Um, the, the, in a traditional crisis of this sort um, in a developing country, what happens when things start turning down is the exchange rate collapses. And that is basically a good thing when the exchange rate collapses. Because if you're Argentina or Brazil or, or Turkey or Korea in crisis, exchange rate drops, it forces a reduction in consumption, and it stimulates the economy by making your goods more competitive on world markets and reducing your imports. So a lot of the adjustment takes place automatically as the exchange rate drops. Unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, who knows, um, the U.S. is the world's key currency country. It is still a safe haven because actually currency, currencies are assets, but they're all relative, you know. So what are you going to hold if you're not holding dollars? You're going to hold euros, they don't look so hot. You're going to hold yens, they don't look so, yen, they don't look so hot. You're not going to hold pesos or reals. So people still want to hold dollars, and the dollar has actually appreciated. And that has some good characteristics, some good implications, for one, it means that we can continue to finance our budget deficit, at least in part from abroad. But it also means that we're not getting any of that adjustment by way of the exchange rate. And all the adjustment is going to have to take place by way of domestic economic activity and domestic prices. So what we're seeing now is, so, so when the exchange rate drops in a country, 
What does that mean? It means that domestically produced tradables are more expensive and non-tradables are cheaper. Right? We're having the same thing happen, except that the exchange rate's not moving. What's happening is that non-tradables prices, especially housing prices, are just falling through the floor. Right? So we're getting the, the way the economy, if you want to anthropomorphize the economy, the way the economy is forcing this adjustment, reduction in consumption, reduction in real wages, reduction in, um, the, in American production prices is by pushing the, the only prices it can push down, can't push down world prices, but it can push down American prices, is pushing down American prices and especially American housing prices. The stronger the dollar stays, the farther housing prices are going to have to fall to keep the economy in balance. Right? So it is not necessarily a good thing that the dollar is as strong as it is. It implies that, I mean, back in the 20s and 30s, the, the phrase that uh, economists used to use about this was, you can either let the currency take the strain or let the economy take the strain. And in the post-Bretton Woods era, typically governments have let the currency take the strain. You know, if there's an economic problem, you don't force 25% unemployment on the population or 25% nominal wage reductions on the population to keep your economy in balance. You get a 25% devaluation, right? And we're not getting that. And that, that in some sense, is, is going to exacerbate the domestic effect of the crisis in the U.S. So that's a connection to exchange rates. I'll stop that. I could pontificate forever, but the... Okay. I only know a few names, um, but I know the names of everybody who's got their hand up. So, Danielle. <laughs> all of which had similar current account deficits. The countries that didn't, you're right. This is what you, so the, the so-called, one of the reasons, the, the quote-unquote Anglo-Saxon countries, uh, New Zealand, Ireland, Iceland, I don't know if that's Anglo-Saxon, Saxon maybe, um, uh, the UK, um, and Spain, Portugal, had substantial current account deficits, capital inflows. Germany did not. Right? India did not. China certainly did not. You have increases in housing prices in a lot of places, but this particular nexus where the capital inflows are directly related to the, the, the relative price changes is specific to a few countries. Right? Now, what you said in, when we were talking before is absolutely right. That is, this only helps explain, to the extent that it's right, only helps explain the, the, the catalyst of the crisis. It doesn't explain its propagation. The propagation of the crisis to Germany, to Europe, to the rest of the world is largely through the financial system. As, and, you know, as you know, what happens is, I mean, this is, so I, I was trying to do it in five minutes, although it took 15. Um, the, the, the sort of the global picture of this is that you have a whole series of countries that for a variety of reasons are running big surpluses, right? So the surplus countries, what are they doing? The surplus countries are all investing in subprime mortgages. So, or, you know, it's exaggerated, but they're investing in the deficit countries. So they're the ones that are buying all these housing assets. So when the housing market collapses, it doesn't only have an impact on the U.S. and the other countries that have had this boom. It has an impact on the countries that have invested in the boom countries, and that's, that's the German or the, the, you know, Scandinavian or the, some of the East Asian or the Chinese 
case. And also, I mean, obviously the effect on demand, you know, you get a drop in American demand, that's going to have an impact on all the countries that rely on us to export. But, but I think if you look, so um, Ireland is a really interesting case that I've been fascinated by with, for a long time. So Ireland is the most successful economy in the world for the last 15 years, but it's also the country with the biggest current account deficit as a share of GDP, right? And they're also having probably the biggest crisis in, in the EU, in, well, in Western Europe. I'm wondering if your macroeconomic analysis of the historical crisis then has a problem with the case. If we are not adjusting the economy, but rather we're going to press this, and that's bad for the then we ought to be substantially more capable of pressing massively so, and not actually engineering the valuation of the dollar to have the investment benefit of not causing us to have housing prices fall as far as we save the banks. Well, um, a lot of U.S. debt is, is inflation pegged, but a lot of it isn't. And so, so that's a, that's a, that take a long time to work through all the relations there. But the, the first thing that jumps to my mind is that one of the things that that would imply is inflating away the real burden of our debt, which is, I think, unquestionably going to happen eventually. And eventually what's going to happen is that American debt holders are going to be, are going to get less than, the real value of their of their debt because we will either they will deflate and we will not or we will inflate and they will not um, so that's going to happen um, whether the policy implication is that we should just be as irresponsible as we can to try to force the dollar down I'm not quite sure I'd go there because there there even in the case of the U.S. there's always the risk of a real loss of confidence in the dollar right and and you know I mean 1.7 trillion in fiscal deficit, that's probably enough. Um, I hesitate to suggest that we need more. But I do think that the, the one area in which I think the focus on real macroeconomic imbalances as opposed to the financial aspects is important, or one of the areas where I think it's important, is to understand that this is not a crisis. These are not problems that can be resolved simply by solving the problems in the banking system. Now, the converse of that is also true. That is, as Danielle was pointing out to me, the Japanese found, you can't resolve the macroeconomic problems if you don't deal with the problems in the banking system. But I think there's a, a very widespread view that it, once we get the financial markets worked out, everything will be fine, and we, it won't. We'll have a 10 or $12 trillion debt overhang, and that will, of necessity, require massive adjustment in the U.S., adjustment of the sort that we know from any macroeconomic imbalance like that. We, we, during the borrowing period, we consumed more than we produced, we invested more than we saved, and the government spent more than it took in. And eventually we have to turn those things around, and we're going to have to produce more than we consume, we're going to have to save more than we invest, and the government's going to have to take in more than it spends in current expenses. And that's inevitable, and, and that's... Nothing that's done with the banking system is going to resolve that, and that is a function of the underlying macroeconomic imbalances rather than financial shenanigans. Um, yes? The one name I don't know. Yes? 
Yes. Right. Right. Yes, this is very true. And, and so, so this raises endogeneity, raises its ugly head. Seminar comment number one. Right. Ed Lamer used to have a, had a, a sheet of seminar comments. One is endogeneity, and one is an omitted variable bias. And, you know, um, but in this case, it's right. No, no, absolutely. It's the, no, it's, an, it's seminar comment number one because it's almost always correct, and, and you're right. So I'll tell you, I'll give you an even better one. Oh, can I answer this one first? Okay. Because I have an even better objection. So, so tra- tra- trade, trade responds to exchange rate policy, especially the fixing. But it responds with a, lot of a, with a bit of a lag. Right? And we try some instrumental variables. That's the border stuff. And we used gravity equations. We used a gravity equation. And we used a whole variety of other things. It didn't disturb that result. So it's plausible that trade is endogenous to exchange rate regime choice. But remember, these are countries, the average regime in these cases is changing every two or three years. So they're bouncing back and forth in some sense, uh, although there's an average here. So it's, but you're, you're absolutely right. Where it's even more of a problem, though, is in foreign debt. Because trade is a long-term relationship, among, uh, typically. But taking on foreign debt is often stimulated by fixing the exchange rate. It's very common that when a country fixes the, the government fixes the exchange rate, the domestic debtors say, see an opportunity. And they say, as long as I get out before they devalue, I can borrow as much as I want in dollars or in euros, pay it back before they devalue, and I'm, I'm doing great. Because euro loans are, are 4%, and you know, whatever the local currency loans are 15%. You know, it's like the carry trade. Um, so that's a real, that, that is a real problem, because that's something that could respond on a year-to-year basis. So I don't have a great answer except to say we tried the instrumental variables. We tried controlling with the gravity equation, which should pick up some of the, the, in, the natural trade relations among these countries. right? Um, and nothing affects this relationship. But, but you're absolutely right that, a, that a, a mo- if we had more data in a longer time period and if we could think of better instrumental variables to use, the, the first thing we want to do is try to make sure that the, F, the especially the trade, FDI, and foreign debt are not endogenous to the exchange rate regime choice. What was your second question? My second question is that um, the share of money pressure in employment, like exchange is fine, it, it has a nice time in with lots of exchange rate, and it has a close line in the uh, Missouri exchange rate. Mm-hmm. And they, they share a very close employment doesn't change. So I'm just interested. The, so, um, you know, I'm gonna. I. I should always reread these papers before. I, <laughs> you know, the the. I'm wondering whether that's a typo, actually, um, frankly, because as you can see, in the previous run, it's still negative. It's in, when you're on, this is on table six. So you go from table one to table two, it's flip sign, but that's throwing in, the only change there is throwing in the stock of FDI as a share of GDP, and I can't imagine that that's right. The main result that we got was that the sh- manufacturing as a share of GDP um, loses, becomes smaller and eventually loses significance with the de jure rates. And that's because, as I was saying before, those are stated exchange rate regimes, which are probably, I mean, makes sense that they're less important to 
the people in the real economy than the, than the real exchange rate regime, than what's really happening with the exchange rate. The government can say, you know, uh, we're, we're going to fix the exchange rate, but the exchange rate's bouncing around, people are going to know that that's happening. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a typo. I'll, I'll have to thank you for pointing that out. If it's not a typo, I'll have to try to explain it. You're fine. Uh, so I was thinking about the Glossa's confidence question and wondering about international audiences in your explanation of the transition country. So you know, given David's work, I was kind of curious that he didn't, there wasn't more of a speculative attack of that in driving this. So I guess the international audiences generally, as well as uh, particular international actors like the IMF and World Bank, to what extent your explanation is very domestic, right? And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this. Yeah, you know, we thought about that and we put in I think it's mentioned in a footnote somewhere. We put in a lot of stuff that, that ended up not having any impact, so we didn't even bother to mention it. One was whether the country was under agreement with the IMF. There's a problem with that because some of these countries are under agreement with the IMF throughout the entire period, right? Um, so, and some never. So it, that comes almost close to being a country dummy. But it didn't seem to have any impact. And, you know, and, and as you know, the IMF, despite the rap that it takes in many instances, the IMF really doesn't have strong exchange rate preferences. I mean, it, it, you know, it's sort of... There are circumstances in which it would suggest that you devalue and circumstances in, in which they suggest you peg. And so uh, so that, there's that. The broader question, I think, is a, is a good one, which is, and I, I'd have to think about how expectations would work here, um, and not the speculative attack one, but the idea that you might be choosing your exchange rate regime for an international audience and particularly for a, an investing audience. Now, that's par part of our idea about FDI is precisely that. I mean, that, that typically one of the arguments made, one of the, not the economic arguments, but one of the sort of policymaker arguments or political arguments made for fixing an exchange rate, certainly true in the Baltic states and in Bulgaria, not to speak of in places like El Salvador or, or others, um, for fixing the exchange rate or dollarizing or euroizing is that it will make it easier to attract foreign investment. And that was what the FDI thing was meant to, get, although it does have this endogeneity characteristic. Um, if we could, so that would be, it would be interesting to, to see the extent. I mean, here's, here's a problem. So to the extent that any policy is responding to a government's desire to increase its credibility, how do you come up with an exogenous measure of its demand for credibility? Right? I mean, do you look at past behavior? The least reliable governments are the ones with the highest demand for a credible signal. That's plausible, and there is some evidence to that effect. Governments that have run the most irresponsible monetary and fiscal policies and have had the highest rates of inflation over time are the ones that, controlling for a whole bunch of other stuff, are more likely to adopt a fixed rate to try to bring inflation down. Right? I mean, countries that have responsible monetary policies don't need fixed rates. Right? So that's one way of thinking about it, but it's just really difficult to think of uh, an econometrically sound way of capturing the demand for credibility, right. whether domestic or international. If you figure one out, let me know. Um, about income-adjusted debt to foreign debt to GDP. Ah. Poor countries that need to borrow a lot. But that's not my question. Oh, okay. Um, I was intrigued by your Germany result in the paper. Right. because it made sense to me. Ah, good. So explain <laughs> it to me. Grounded in the idea that the economic actors were cross-border 
contracts, if they're trading with a country that's large and if their business is concentrated with a stable currency, can they to some extent import stability in their transactions because they're dealing with a country, who maybe not on their own end, but on the other end, mm. they know exactly what their trading partner is going to be. So can you import stability? Uh -huh. um, but then again, your measure was of exports to Germany. So there's, on some sense, they're at least figuring out their, their market is going to be. But they're very highly correlated. Yeah, yeah, so, so I wondered if you can, if there is a model, of, you know, not like importing inflation, but can you import stability? One way I wondered is, looking at these data, do we know that those floating countries are floating in a narrow band to some extent? So if they're not, I guess the, the, the part I skipped was, if they're not demanding that the government peg, um, does the government have more leeway to stay flexible because this group already is satisfied in that So I really like that with the twist. So here's what I would say may be happening. Countries that have very substantial trade with Germany probably invoice most of that trade in, in euros or with the eurozone. Probably most of that trade is carried out in euros anyway. So the domestic currency's movement against the euro is less relevant or stabilizing that exchange rate is less relevant. So that may be, and, and that's related to the size of the trade, right? So it may also be the case that you got more trade with Germany, you've got a better developed forward market so you can protect yourself against fluctuations more easily. Those are, that's, those are very suggestive, and, and those actually, I could actually look at those things, see how deep the forward markets are in those countries, although there isn't, again, an endogeneity problem. Um, but that, that, you know, that's very interesting, that makes sense. You're fine. Can I just follow up on that? I'm actually very concerned about that Germany result for a different reason, and that I think the size of the coefficient suggests that the model is not identified, uh, given that uh, And so if it really is that we think that there are four countries that are identifying it, uh, I would start by dropping those four countries and re-estimating these models. Mm -hmm. right? Because essentially the rule of thumb, at least as you know, Chris Aiken used to point, uh, drum into me sort of in that, <laughs> that the coefficient in a loaded model is larger than about four or five, uh, also, something is really fishy. Right. Some I think be wrong. Right. And so I look at it's your models of the de facto. Yeah. Uh, the coefficients are five, six, right? And the other coefficients, for the most part, are 0 0.02, 0 0.03. Yeah. Right? If you think of the exponential odds ratio, essentially you're getting a perfect prediction just from that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's probably, you're probably right that, right. yeah. Okay, okay, that's good. That would be, you know, something in the front six before I think. Okay, good point. Good point. I like that. Uh, yes, Alex. Um, how much do we know about the relationship between fixed exchange rates and aggregate welfare? Um, it, it seems like there might be, I mean, you, you sort of divided the, the, you're looking at two special interest groups that have very specific um, distributed sort of preferences. Mm -hmm. So there are two kinds of answers to that. One is to say that there is no social welfare criterion upon which exchange rates can be evaluated. That is, it's not like trade, where you ask an economist and they'll say free trade is best. Because Jeff Frankel has an article called No One Exchange Rate Regime is Right for All Countries All the Time. So an exchange rate regime that's good for one country at one point in time might be bad for it at another point in time. 
So that's the first answer. But the second answer, I think, is more directly relevant to what you're saying, and actually is, your point is suggestive. So if uh, uh, an appreciated real exchange rate means that domestic consumers have more purchasing power. Right? An appreciated real exchange rate uh, means that, essentially, your people are richer, are better off, which is why... Aha, now I can show it, okay. Which is why da, 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 Latin America. This is okay. So this is this is Latin American. Thanks. So this is Latin American exchange rate policy around elections. Okay, and so remember, as the exchange rate gets stronger, people's purchasing power goes up. They can buy more. Right. So if you want to win an election. You appreciate, you let the exchange rate get stronger close to the election. And then, of course, you've got to reverse that after the election. So these are, this is just descriptive statistics. This is 86 elections in Latin America. And here, zero is when the election takes place. Okay? So you can see this is, this, since this is Latin America, down means appreciation. That's the way Latin Americans, it's called the Latin American approach to exchange rates. So you can see as you get to the election, you get averaged over these cases about a 4% real appreciation. That's a lot of variation in there. Some countries, Mexico, 15, 20%, but a 4% real appreciation. The election takes place, and you get a 6 or 7% depreciation in the two months after the election. Okay? So, and then this is, this is, Brought up to 2004 is now 20 more observations. This is the election. You can see exchange is sort of fluctuating around here, sort of stable around time. This is nominal rather than real. Uh, and then you get, on average, 15%, 17% depreciation after an election. Right? And this is around legislative elections. Obviously, stronger incentive to do it around executive elections than legislative elections. So. What that would be called is an electoral exchange rate cycle. Right? That is, that, that governments could be expected, and there is evidence in Latin America and other democratic societies that governments either avoided depreciation or engineer an appreciation in the run-up to an election. Now, how does that relate to fixed exchange rates? Because typically in, in relatively poor societies, there tends to be inflationary pressure. Inflationary pressure or upward pressure on prices. Some of that is just a natural result of rapid economic growth. Poor countries tend to grow more rapidly than rich countries. So countries like in Eastern and Central Europe or Latin America tend to have higher inflation rates than the U.S. and Western Europe. If you fix the exchange rate, they tend to have a real appreciation, right, which makes people better off. It doesn't, make them just, doesn't just make them feel better off. They are better off. They're, the purchasing power of their currency is higher. right? has negative effects as well, but it has a mass effect on mass consumption, which is positive. So fixing the exchange rate, this is what the Latin Americans do expertly. You fix the exchange rate in the run-up to an election, you get a big increase in purchasing power and consumption, especially by the urban middle classes, then the election takes place and you devalue. So if I were to expect a, res a relationship there, it would be of that electoral type. Now, we don't have, we tried to look at this in Eastern and Central Europe, we didn't have enough data on either the timing of elections or on the real exchange rates, but that's for our next paper. It's interesting because you think that from an international perspective, the benefit of fixing your exchange rate is that you're fixing your exchange rate. <laughs> you're just going to start manipulating it right after. Right, election. that's right. It seemed to be purely for domestic. 
this is, so this is a paper that's about regime choice. And this thing is about a paper about change in policy and change in stance over time. So this, this includes countries that are on fixed rates, floating rates, everything. And, and both are relevant, both are important. Yeah, sure. When you started out, you talked about how different groups in society gain or lose by your fixed exchange rates and so forth. And democracies aren't really very different from non-democracies in some sort of pressure groups in all of these. So the logical thing would be not whether it's democratic or not, or more or less democratic, but who's basically unique leagues right. at, the, at the crucial points. So I mean, sort of on the same have people we've got to keep having. Absolutely. The selectorate, as yeah, Bruce right. calls it, right. Yeah, so... Absolutely. I think you're right. And that's why I think the electoral connection is particularly important. The, the way in which, I mean, democracy is such a, not democracy itself, but the democracy measure is such a blunt instrument that it's never entirely clear what we're picking up with it. Yes, right. Okay. That's interesting. Um, but, but neither of those are in our sample, so I don't care. Uh, the, the, uh, the, um, my intuition is that where democracy matters, precisely along the selectorate line, is in electoral pressures. Right? That is, dictatorships have their own, you know, the old line, was, I think, as Volsky said, every country has its constitution about Russia. Ours is autocracy tempered by assassination, right? So, you know, they needed their, their support base as well. But democracies face elections. And, and so if I were to expect anything, the one thing that I'm pretty confident we will find, because I found it in every other instance in which I've looked for it, is electoral effects. That is, an indication that governments consciously use exchange rate policy for electoral purposes. Of course, non-electoral governments don't. Right? Um, beyond that, as I say, torn between two co-authors, I am agnostic. Um, I'm not sure what. In, there, is a, there is a result in the literature, which I used to believe, and I guess I still do believe it, because um, it makes a certain amount of sense, which says that if you're a developing country and you want to bring inflation down, you want low inflation, you've got two ways of doing it. You can either have an independent central bank or you can peg your currency to the dollar or the euro. Right? So one thing that might affect that is whether you're democratic or not. Democratic countries can credibly set up an independent central bank. But Saddam Hussein could not say, my central bank is now independent. It's going to guarantee low inflation and do that credibly. So an exchange rate peg is perhaps a better strategy for a dictatorship than for a democracy, and central bank independence for a, de a democracy. That's Lawrence Burroughs has that article, has, has that argument in the literature. Well, so, you're going to the set of countries that are all more or less democratic in some way, right? In the, well, actually, no, because we, we have Belarus, we have uh, some of the, I mean, we have Serbia at times when it's not, entire, not democratic. We have Russia, which I don't know where it scores on the polity score. But, so these are not all, and Kazakhstan. Um, so uh, Georgia, we, so we have some of the other, Azerbaijan, some of the other countries are not democratic. They, I mean, there is a range, I, it's in here somewhere, a range on the polity score. So there, there are some that fall below zero on that score and, and some that should. <laughs> uh, so, so I think there is a range of variation. But I'm, I just am sort of reluctant, I'm reluctant to push it too far at this juncture, partly because 
of what you said, which is the measurement is very imprecise, and partly because I'm not sure what the theoretical basis for the argument would be. <coughs> Absolutely. Sure, sure, sure. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. It doesn't. Right. Quite right. Quite right. So, so here's how I would think about that. That's that in some sense is not so much about the regime as it is about the level of the real exchange rate. So if we, we want to take the polar opposites, you've got East Asia and Latin America. Latin America, for 50 years, has a tendency for appreciated real exchange rates. And East Asia, for 50 years, has a tendency for depreciated real exchange rates. What's the trade-off there? An appreciated real exchange rate hurts your exporters and helps your consumers. And a depreciated real exchange rate helps your exporters and hurts your consumers. Not trivial and not coincidental, I think, that on average, Latin American countries are democratic and face electoral pressures from consumers and the mass public. And the exporters typically have been in the rural sector and in raw materials, foreign-owned multinationals or you know, raw materials producers. And in East Asia, you're not dealing with democracies, and consumers are not powerful, and the manufactured exporters are crucially important to the political economy. And test cases there would be Korea and Taiwan, which up until democratization had very strongly depreciated real exchange rates. Within months of democratization in Korea, there were insistent pressures from the public to allow the exchange rate to float upward. And it's not that they said, please appreciate our exchange rate. They said, you're holding, you're telling us you can't spend more money on public education, on public housing, on the healthcare system, and yet you're holding $300 billion in foreign currency reserves to keep the yuan weak. Spend some of that money at home, which is how you get a real appreciation. So democratization in those two countries led to an appreciation of the exchange rate and made consumers better off. So I would... <laughs> Scandinavia, yeah. The Scandinavian model was, as you may recall, um, was centralized bargaining um, and active exchange rate policy, which means push the exchange rate down when you need to. Because they believed, with some reason, I think, until perhaps the early 90s, they believed that with centralized bargaining, you could avoid the inflationary effects of a devaluation. Right? So you get the positive competitive effects of a devaluation without the negative inflationary effects. Um, I don't know how that tracks into the East Asian Latin American divide, but I do think that in line with what John was saying before and what you were saying, that, that if you think of democracies as representing mass consumers more effectively than autocracies, then you would expect democracies on average to have stronger real exchange rates than autocracies, especially to the extent that autocracies, as in East Asia, tend to overrepresent exporters, manufactured or raw material.
Yes. Um, on the crisis, um, you said that there was a disconnect between the specialist literature uh, and the public debate uh, about the causes of the crisis and how to overcome it and so forth. And I wonder if you'd comment a little bit on why that's the case. Since, since some of the participants, right, people like Paul Bergman yeah. and Summers, presumably are also contributors to the specialist literature as well as the public literature, yeah. although maybe that's wrong. But that's, a, that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question, which is much more important for all of us, is does the Obama administration have it right? <laughs> uh, well, can you define, well. Well, define right the way you did. I mean, yeah. They have the, the picture of the causes of the crisis and therefore um, the, the challenges yeah. ahead, sure. uh, similar to your presentation or not. Yeah. Are they making matters worse in the public debate, or are they holding on despite criticisms that ought not to be allowed? Mm -hmm. Well, um, actually, I don't, I don't think there's that much of a disconnect between what specialists say in the specialist literature and what they say in public. So Krugman actually has been saying, look, this is about, I mean, he, he probably had a couple of recent columns saying, this is not just about regulation. Even if the regulation had been perfect, we would still be in big trouble. Even if we get the regulation right, it will still, we'll still be in big trouble. Of course, the regulation made things a lot worse. He, I think this was his column last week. And, and, I, and Summers, has been, Summers has been talking about these things for a while. And Ken Rogoff um, has been talking about them for, for a while. So I think, I don't know, this sounds so idiosyncratic. You know, American journalists, uh, especially those who cover the economy, typically don't know much about economics. And the financial shenanigans and the regulatory and sort of dishonest and other aspects of this are, they're, they're what grabs people's attention. I mean, I, I read the Financial Times, and the Financial Times has been, as they would say, spot on from the beginning. I mean, their commentary and their coverage has all been about the the macroeconomic imbalances and what those imply. Now they talk about regulation a lot too. So I don't, I mean, I, that's, that's very idiosyncratic and I, I'm not sure I would hew to it, but I, I don't have a great answer. On the administration, I think their, I think their diagnosis is pretty accurate. I mean, I, I know what some of the principals think because they used to be my colleagues. Um, and, and, and they're certainly thinking along these lines. And, and what they're thinking, specifically what they're thinking, which is in line with this broader perspective, is yes, we have to correct the regulatory problems. Yes, we have to shore up the banking system. But we also have to settle in for some very, very difficult years of austerity. That's one of the reasons I think they're taking advantage of the current conjuncture, as the Europeans would say, to, to ramp up spending on a lot of things that they think absolutely have to get done Taking, I mean, this is why the Republicans don't like this, I think. You know, is they're, they're using the opportunity that there's a consensus on spending what it takes to get us out of the crisis to spend what it takes to get us out of the crisis on things that they think need to be spent upon anyway. Because they know that three years from now we're going to be in an atmosphere of austerity, and that's inevitable. So I think that there, there is a broad understanding that, and, and actually, in some ways, a lot of people, a lot of my friends thought that Obama's inaugural address was weak, but I actually thought it was appropriate and, and reflected a very somber picture of where we stand. So even in the sort of broad public face kind of thing, you know, I think what they're doing is projecting pretty much the right view, which is, 
yes, we need immediate intervention to deal with the current crisis, but we also have to understand that this is not a crisis that's going to go away in two years. Even if the economy starts growing in 16 months or 18 months, we're going to be facing the, the implications of this crisis for the next five to ten years. So I think that they have that diagnosis clearly in mind and they're operating on that presumption. That's why the AMT, you know, that's why all these, these projections about the AMT and about Social Security and Medicare and capital gains taxation are important, I think, because they're, they're forward-looking as opposed to crisis-driven. Okay. I think we've exhausted the topic or the audience oh, or both. Not by far, but we do have a reception waiting. So okay. Thank you, everyone.